0: Thank you, Rihanna, for sharing your good news with us, you know, and those liver tests, how wonderful. Of course, of course, they're good. I mean, that that medicine is used to treat people who have liver disease. Good heavens, it's, it's, it's just wonderful to hear it. You know, it's so good to hear from you and from all of you out there, especially those of you who live all over the world, your feedback heaps. All of us here going at the FLCCC, especially when the pharmaceutical industry and the government agencies that their big dollars have captured insist that only their latest, most expensive product works. Well, our doctors who have been treating COVID patients and others for years, for decades in some cases, with many FDA-approved, truly safe and effective medicines, know otherwise. And they're here to tell you what they have learned. That's what this is all about. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm creative director of this alliance. And I'm here tonight with two of our doctors who are in private practice. Dr. Keith Berkowitz, who happens to be my personal physician, he's (laughs) an internist with a large practice called the Center for Balanced Health in Midtown Manhattan in New York. The other is Dr. Yusuf J.P., he goes by, Salibi, a functional medicine physician who practices at Carolina Holistic Medicine in Charleston, South Carolina. Both were presenters at the FLCCC's first medical conference this fall in Orlando. And tonight they're going to tell us what they're seeing in patients coming in now with COVID, the flu, or this other RSV respiratory virus that's floating around and how they're treating patients, what's working, what's not. And they're going to be able to take many of your questions. Of course, our nurses are already online. They are taking questions throughout the program that you type into the Q and a, but We'll have yours, we'll have some of them here on the screen as well. After the doctors, you know, uh, kind of wrap up the conversation, let's just get in with it because there's a lot going on, all these, this triple threat of diseases that all of the media is scaring us with. And the question to you both, and either one of you can take it whenever, is, you know, what really are you seeing now? how bad is it um and you know are we going to have a miserable holiday season because of this or are you able to help help the patients and do you have good advice what can you do what's what should people do who wants to go first take it away you know what's <laughs>
1: interesting sorry first of all we get two of my my favorite integrated physician we got to talk together and also one from the north and one from the south so we'll see right. if we different perspective from that aspect. I'll start, if you don't mind, JP, from the north. Uh-huh. I'm seeing you know, a lot of viral illnesses. It's really interesting, but it's different. If you go back more to Omicron, it was a lot of sinus type symptoms. Now what's interesting, no matter what they're, whether it's RSV, influenza, or COVID, a lot of they're presenting with sore throats, which is really interesting. They start with sore throats, swollen glands, the nasal congestion, which I saw before, but now I'm seeing chest congestion which I didn't see a little earlier, now that's becoming more of a major symptom. I mean, the good news is I'm not seeing people with low oxygen, rarely they have high fever, some do. I mean, as with any kind of virus, a lot of them have constitutional symptoms with muscle weakness, but not a a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms though, right now. I don't know if what you're seeing is different.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it is the season, right? So um, (laughs) this is not unexpected. We are seeing kind of a milder form of respiratory infections. Um, We are seeing a a little bit of a rise in the uh, the acute calls that are coming in. My practice is normally takes patients uh, two weeks out to to get a booking. And uh, we do have some providers set up to take uh, acute uh, ill calls. And we're seeing a little uptick in that. Not huge. Not not like the numbers we saw in the last couple of years during the pandemic, for sure. And it seems milder. Uh, Again, Keith, I would agree with you. Kind of snotty nose, a little dry cough, nasal congestion. You know, you get people talking like this with their their nose all congested on the other line of a telehealth, and you know they've got something. Um, So we're also seeing patients that are following up for routine visits, and their nasal congestion, and it's kind of like, oh, and by the way, I've I've got something brewing. And so we can get in early and, and do some treatment. And this is just on a routine follow-up visit.
0: It
1: Maybe, you can, see, no? can you tell the difference? I'm sorry, Betsy, with whether they have COVID, RSV, or influenza, can you tell by before you even test, are you seeing a difference in presentation?
2: Not really. It's kind of a moot point. I mean, you can tell if it's a, a difference between a, like a bacterial Uh, infection in a chronic COPD patient or emphysema patient versus, uh, you know, uh, a family that presents with uh, all upper respiratory, runny nose, watery eyes, a dry cough, post-nasal drip, and all that stuff. And and I'm not even testing. Um, You know, I find that uh, we've got early intervention treatment protocols that cover all kinds of viruses. I don't care if they present with Zika, or chicken goina, you know, in a in a way, in a matter. So I'm not I'm not having them run out and get a you know nasal swabs. Uh, we did um, have a couple uh, test positive um, for influenza A, uh, but they you know they went to an urgent care and got tested uh, tested negative for COVID, but positive for influenza A. So, um, but you know when I, when we hear those um, that presentation, we're throwing them on our protocol.
1: So. Yeah, what's interesting is, and we were talking off air about this. A lot of them, the test is negative. We have a negative. Rap- I saw someone the other day with COVID, negative rapid test. I, I saw them. I was like, "This isn't COVID. This is more likely flu." The next day, came back was positive for COVID, and influenza was negative. So I, I think you're right. I think luckily we have a, you know a protocol that's broad based that really can cover all those different illnesses. And again, not relying on you know the test to be done in positive because this way we can really intervene very early. And we've known throughout this pandemic, that's the key at the end of it. Yeah. What well,
0: I'm hearing both of you say is that it's more like a normal year. It's not like pandemic panic uh, where we've been. Am I wrong?
2: No, right? Yeah, I mean, we're not seeing the huge numbers. You know, We're seeing a little bit of an uptake. But they, again, that's that's to be expected this time of year. You know, it's getting colder. People are getting in closer together. Uh, they're swapping germs. So we're we're going to see it. But it's it's not not we're not hitting the panic button.
1: What's interesting, Betsy, is my my friend, my friend is a pediatrician. They're getting overwhelmed and the adult population. I don't think we're seeing the same numbers or even close to those numbers that in the pediatric population they've seen right now. That's where I think the big difference is in my area, at least.
0: Well, you've got family holidays coming up. The kids are going to be with the adults and and the older adults. You know, what do you tell people? How do you deal with this to preserve uh, the grandparents who really could be threatened by something?
2: Um, You know, if you're sick, stay home. Um, I was invited up to my sister's up in North Carolina for Thanksgiving. And uh, one of the family members presented with a a cough and a hacking. And uh, it turned out the whole household Wound up getting um influenza A and I stayed away. You know, I decided to, uh, you know, have my turkey um with a couple other close family members in South Carolina and stay away from the germs. So I mean, common sense, you know, um, good hand washing. Uh, you know, if someone's sick, don't go uh get up close to, close to them. I mean, kind of common sense stuff. And I agree. um 100 percent Keith,
0: yeah, so are you I recommend?
2: Are you recommending prophylactic uh, measures? I mean, what are you telling your patients this time of year what what to take, um, nutraceutical-wise or even prescription-wise?
1: So uh, my patients normally take vitamin C, vitamin D. So it's not anything new, as Betsy knows, right? So we do that on a regular basis anyway. So it's really, I, I think what I'm doing, though, more than ever before is nasal rinse. Like I'm really having my patients aggressively twice a day nasally rinse because we do know most of these pathogens do come through the nasal cavity. And I think the best thing to really prevent that is continually drain your sinuses so there's no buildup of viral load in that area.
0: What <laughs> nasal rinse are you talking about? What kind of thing?
1: Even as simple as saline, some people use the excluder, which is an erythritol-based um, where my more my patients that are more prone to sinus infections, I'll often use an antihistamine and uh, nasal spray followed by nasal saline afterwards. Especially people that get a lot of congestion so that the nasal antihistamine opens up the uh, turbinates and the airways a little bit better so you can drain more effectively. But I, I think even, like I said, nasal saline is effective, is helpful. Really flushing out that nasal cavity where these viral particles really start to really, you know, lodge and grow and see. And when I and again we see congestion as one or I like the snotty one better, but as the first uh kind of symptom in a lot of these people.
0: You're not talking about the povidone iodine solution.
1: Not like? necessarily. I mean, I think in people that are in a high risk situation where they go on a big event, I'll use that, but not on a daily basis now. I because I think the big difference, and JP said this so well, is that they're not as sick. We're not seeing the low oxygen levels, we're not seeing the pneumonia afterwards. We're, we're not seeing those really the huge inflammatory actions that we got before where people, you know, were in the hospital. Really, those cases are low. And, and if you read the news, a lot of the hospital they're talking about is in kids. And not necessarily for COVID right now, but you know for RSV or other
0: so basically you're not yeah. seeing the Omicron variant having any effect on the lungs.
1: Is that right? I think because we, I think JP and I both early treat. I think that's the key. I think we get there before that could be an issue. Right.
2: I'm recommending, you know, zinc and quercetin, uh, vitamin C, vitamin D, of course, As a foundational things, and then um, you know I've in the past uh, flu and upper respiratory tract uh, seasons I've used BioCidin, which comes in a couple of forms. In the liquid form, you can nebulize it. So sometimes I get the home nebulizer kits. Some of my patients have it. It's great for kids as well as adults. You put ten drops in there with the sterile uh, saline solution that comes with it, and you nebulize it. You know I tell them inhale through the nose, exhale through the mouth. So you're nebulizing all that, and it's uh, bactericidal for many pathogens, viruses, fungi, and microbes, uh, bacteria. And um, also, you can do the liposomal uh, biocide in a couple of pumps under your tongue. I do that routinely. When I, Especially if I feel a scratchy throat, I'll do that, and usually two days it's gone. So those are things that you should have stored in your refrigerator and in your medicine
0: chest. Tell me that one again. I didn't miss that one. Well, now I get the scratchy throat a lot. Come on.
2: <laughs> yeah, Biocidin. B-I-O-C-I-D-I-N. Um, a lot of times it's not available over the counter. You have to go through your healthcare practitioner, um, and they can uh, source it for you.
1: So another thing I like to use, I don't know if you use this at all, I use in my patients really prone for sinus infections. I'll use intranasal glutathione. I can get compounded for them. And I find that very effective as well.
0: What Nasal what was that?
1: Glutathione. Intranasal glutathione.
2: Glutathione. Mm-hmm.
1: And I've had good success, especially people, and I don't know if you're seeing this, I have a lot of chronic cough. People that they have a cough that doesn't go away with really no other symptoms. And that seems to help a lot if it's right. related to digestion that's not resolving. Right. Okay
2: glutathione can be expensive, especially if you have compounded and it's fairly unstable. So it's got to be refrigerated. But yes. here's a little cheap trick. So melatonin is dirt cheap. Melatonin is one of the cheapest nutraceuticals you can find out there. And melatonin, if taken orally, can actually increase glutathione and SOD. Uh, superoxide desmutase, and those are anti-inflammatory antioxidants, and they can help with, and I think that's one of the main reasons that melatonin has been effective with the COVID infection and with our long haulers, and that's why it's made the, uh, the protocol. So, um, And, and um, talking about melatonin, I think we should uh, talk about dosing, and there was a question that came in about sustained release versus immediate release. Keith, you want to talk about that a bit? or I've got my thoughts, but yeah, I'd like to hear yours.
1: No, I'll talk about in the group that has to be careful with that. I think I'll mention as well, because this is my favorite topic, that group. So sustained release, the one advantage is it's slower release and lasts longer. And I think for people, especially using for sleep, that's really a much better version. And people that are more, where they're more susceptible, um, but the other word is where they more likely get side effects from something, it's a slower release as well. So you don't get all that melatonin at once. The group that has to be careful for that is people that are prone to low blood sugar. Melatonin can lower blood glucose level. And what it is, is that group is, I always can tell those are people that get vivid dreams and nightmares. So those are my group that's prone to low blood sugar should be a little bit more judicial with ramping up the dose of melatonin because of its effect on cortisol. Great. Right. Right.
2: And, I, and I think, you know, historically melatonin has been used for as a sleep aid. It's been, there's a protocol to use for jet lag, you know, when you take it, um, going from one coast to the other, uh, jet lag. There are also like super high doses that are used in some cancer protocols. Um, and of course, you know, we've been using it in COVID and other infections. Um, but, um, you know, I think the immediate release I think there's more data on that than sustained release. I would su- say I agree with Keith on that. Reserve the sustained release for those who don't tolerate immediate release. And for those who have like, um, if it's lo- used for sleep, who uh, will periodically wake up through through the night, uh, the SR might be a better version. You don't want to stay on it for, for protracted periods of time because it does uh, suppress the pineal gland in some folks. So usually I, I have folks... Um, take it five days on and two consecutive days off um, just so that the pineal gland can kind of recover a bit. Um, And then the dosing is all over the place. So more is not necessarily better. Uh, I find with sleep, sometimes one or two milligrams is better than five or 10. Um, I think our protocols for the COVID are around 10 milligrams. I've seen cancer uh, therapies as high as 60 milligrams or even higher per day. And I don't advise that for the average Person, so um, and what? Are, what are your thoughts on that, Keith? On those? No, I agree
1: because again, the the pineal gland effect, the cortisol effect, the melatonin as well. You have, and again, that's why we try and give it a night because you don't want to suppress so much because fatigue can definitely be important. And I think what you said is really interesting. Is I think when people use it for too long, then they run into trouble, and and they need to take a break every once in a while from it. I think that's really important.
2: It's a it's a short-acting hormone. Uh, there's studies that report somewhere between 20 to 40 uh, minutes maximum of effect, especially when you drop a, like a immediate release or regular um, a melatonin. Um, but one of one of the things, and this is a word of warning, is chronopharmacology. You gotta know when to take it. You only take melatonin at night. Don't take it in the morning. There was a study with cancer patients, and it showed. Uh, Three groups, there's three arms to the study, morning, midday, and evening. And it turned out with uh, cancer survivors that um, taking the melatonin in the evening, even high dose, suppressed um, cancer growth and uh, and decreased recurrence. Uh, And the people took it midday, no no change in their condition. The folks that took it in the morning actually increased their cancer recurrence. So there's a reason why you have to follow that circadian rhythm and, and you want to take it in the evenings.
1: Yeah, I think that's one thing we forget about a lot of times that, and I think we live in a society where we start with coffee in the morning, alcohol at night. I always talk about people in my practice, they're wired and tired at the end of the day. And that's because their circadian rhythm is off. There's a reason that it's dark. When it's dark, it means it's time to rest and sleep. And we've talked so much about you know, the benefits of intermittent intimate fasting and autophagy. And the key to that is really more important than anything else is respecting your circadian rhythm. That's where repair happens when it's at night, when it's dark out, when the body gets the rest. There's a reason we have a day-night cycle.
0: We, have, we have a question about this. Um, one of our people, Alice, asked uh, one of the doctors to say, uh, why whenever she takes melatonin, she gets anxious or jittery. What's causing that? Do you know?
1: You want me to take that? I could take Because it's my- No, problem. you can, you, that's you know, your thing <laughs> with your sugar, sugar no, issues. Blowing the blood sugar. I was saying before about vivid dreams and stuff. Melatonin, because of its effect on cortisol, can actually lower glucose. And that's a, an issue you have to be careful of. So people that are very sensitive to low blood sugar, I call them my reactive hypoglycemia group where they react to either stress of food and their blood sugar drops have to be much more gentle with melatonin. And that's a group where sustained release would be probably a better option because of the slower release of the hormone. Instead of getting all at once quickly, that slower release would actually be more effective for that group and have less side effects.
0: Is it the same dosage that you take, whether it's sustained release or all at once, What? how do you manage that?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I think it's very independent of what people can tolerate. Um, you know, some people can tolerate five milligrams at night as immediate release, and some can't. Some have to. So I, I recommend starting low and go slow. Start with one milligram and then, uh, and then go to three to five to nine, something like that, instead of just hammering it away with 20 milligrams right off the onset. Um, Same thing with sustained release. You can get folks that are super sensitive and wake up pretty hungover uh, from even a five milligram dose of melatonin. Uh, They wake up and, you know, and they're waking up later in the morning and it takes them two more hours to kind of get their um, engine running. So everyone's a little
0: different.
1: And not everyone, it's interesting when we looked, not everyone's melatonin deficient, right? So there was a lot of studies on the years ago they used to look at where people actually and then we used to measure this through saliva. I don't know if you used to do this, where they look at melatonin levels. And some people are more deficient than others. And I think that also makes a difference. I mean, one thing that's always interesting, and I always find fascinating about medicine, the more deficient someone is, the slower you have to go. <laughs> because the more, more sensitive they are to... More take- sensitive.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost with everything across the board. Not <laughs> not not that, not just that one particular <laughs> hormone, but other, other hormones as well. Sure.
0: JP, you had some slides that you wanted to show. You were going to be talking a little bit about um, some of the treatments here. Uh, uh, did you go into that
2: now? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're they're pretty technical. Let me see if I can. Um, well, they're they're kind of technical. So this is a this is a kind of a really technical melatonin slide. Um, and it shows um, some of its uses and mechanisms of action. Uh, some of the, like the Warburg effect on, you know, cancer, malignancies, it's an anti-inflammatory. Um, it, it, it reduces the pro-inflammatory cytokines and it increases the anti-inflammatory cytokines. I mean, this is kind of a technical slide, um, but, um, and, and here's another one that shows um, some of its uses in a variety of um, illnesses and um, like it's use in suppressing that little red with that little bar, um, that means it's suppressing um, or, 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 in you know, um, suppressing that activity. So you have all those interleukins up in the top left corner, the inflammation, and you have the oxidative stress with, um, um, with melatonin suppressing that. Um, and I mean, it's kind of a little bit of a complicated slide, but it's kind of fun to look at. So um, that's kind of what I brought brought to the table. Um, probably too much to to kind of get into uh, in this session, but um I don't know if we can provide the, those slides to folks uh, in some format, um, if they want to take their time to look them over.
0: Well, this whole thing is being recorded, and they can watch it tomorrow uh recording and stop it at any point and take, you know, take pictures and whatever. So you basically right. have, provided it. And we have quite a few people who are medical professionals who are out there and they can, they can get it. So, uh, it's very valuable. We now have a question here. We have people who are wondering if you've noticed either one of you, any excess deaths among your patients over the past two years. If so, what are your observations and interpretations of this?
2: Wow. You start. I'm going,
1: to, I'm going to put it a different way. I'm going to say, are we seeing markers that are abnormal that we need to evaluate better? How's that? So one thing I've definitely noticed, and, and I've been doing more of it, is measuring for one D-dimer. So D-dimer is a marker of, of blood clotting, and it's related to fibrin aggregation. I am seeing elevated levels in a large number of patients, more than I've ever seen before. The other ones we're seeing, I don't know if JPC in this too, is high iron levels. Many patients have high iron levels. We're seeing low white blood counts, white blood cell counts than we normally do. People who normally hover in a normal range of five to six and now two, three, and four. That's a big change. And I wonder if that's also why we're seeing this as, you know, a lot of viral illnesses. Viral illnesses can actually decrease white blood counts. Um, some. And going back to the iron, I'm seeing high iron in the setting of low ferritin, which is very unusual because usually iron, which you know when it, it becomes overloaded, ferritin, which is a marker of iron storage, is generally high. So we're we're seeing, and I think because we're seeing these things and addressing it early, I don't think we're seeing. I'm not seeing the excess deaths in my in my patient population really at all
0: because you're no. treating, you're treating. All right, so how about yeah. you, John?
2: I think in our patient population, and we do a lot of education, and we were spending hour plus with each patient, educating them, teaching them how to be self-sufficient and not relying on the healthcare system. Where I've seen problems is with people uh, getting chemo, and they get, uh, one in particular, got chemotherapy uh, for CLL and got COVID, and the oncologist kept pushing the chemo, and it weakened his immune system. He was hospitalized, and he's finally succumbed to that. So if we can keep our patients out of the hospitals, um, I I know this is a harsh thing to say, but they've become almost like killing fields. So we got to keep people out of the mainstream medical hospitals um, at at all costs to keep them alive. Uh, God only knows what happens when they're in there. Uh, I know there's some folks doing good work inside, but um, I I hear some horror stories and it, it just unnerves me. So my, my job is to keep my folks out of the hospital, uh, early um, interventions, per, you know, true preventive care, uh, true prophylaxis. Um, I'm not using ivermectin as much. Um, we do, um, uh, pers- we have been prescribing linear or nitrazoxanide for years in some of our Lyme patients. And actually in the, between Thanksgiving and Christmas of 2019, something came through our office and of course, you know, we think, well, I don't know, maybe it could have been the first evidence of uh, COVID-19, uh, but there was no way to test it. And that's, you know, we can't go back and, and examine that. But I had some um, samples on the shelf and I doled it out to my five employees. And then within 24 hours, we were all back to work. That was the one day in almost 20 years I actually had to call out sick for a day. It was that bad and that quick. And it went through our office fairly rapidly, whether it was uh in a sense, uh, the first the first evidence of COVID nineteen hitting our area or not, I don't know. But um, the nitrous certainly helped. Um, so we're we're having that as a as a go to drug. Um, you know, Aclovid is is not um, very useful, and ne- neither is Tamiflu. So I don't even prescribe those uh, in our setting.
1: And what's so important is I don't know if JP I used to use that drug for blastocystis. In the gut, right? We used it for years for protozoa. What, what's, what's? I think what we've learned, what makes these, you know, um, therapeutics so effective, is that they also have an immune modulation effect, right? Like we look at ivermectin and alina, which is nitro. They both have an upregulation of the gut microbiome. That's what's really, I think, at the end of the day, we're going to look back and say, why are things working where others are not? And I think that's going to be the key point that we're not only treating the infection we're really creating an environment for the body to heal where it's actually, it's immune system is going to work for itself. That whole concept of immune modulation where for you and I were trained, we always were trained about immune suppression. So attack the immune system, kill all the bugs over and over again. But the problem is there's a price to pay for that, right? The immune system becomes weak and often right. people would get right. a secondary infection, but this way by through immune modulation, right. you get the immune system to work better for itself. And I think that's why this is such an amazing therapeutic, you know, like ivermectin is as well.
0: We have Kathleen Boggs asked a very good question with this. Who exactly should or should not be taking nitrozoxenide? For what illness should it be taken and at what stage of the illness? Well,
2: uh, I'll take this one because I've been using it for a near decade uh, Pre COVID. Um, so we used it as an agent in some of our resistant um, Lyme. That's Borrelia burgdorferi, and some of the other co infections like Babesia for folks with Babesiosis. And um, also, there have been some studies of its use as an anti cancer agent, um, like Fembendazole is another one that's a hot topic right now. So Fembendazole, I just did a PowerPoint presentation on that. Uh, and I've got a couple of patients in my practice. Uh, pharmacists can't get it because it's a, it's not an FDA approved drug for humans. It is approved for veterinary use. So there are folks using high grade uh, veterinary fimbendazole. Um it comes in a syringe and they titrate their dose, you know, 220 um, to 400 milligrams once a day. And it, there's a, there's a whole protocol for that. But anyway, uh, a lot of these antiparasitics seem to work uh, against viruses and against cancer. So they're very interesting drugs. Um ivermectin, uh fimbendazole, fenbendazole, uh, they're all sort of related as anti-parasitics. Um and i think they they're kind of these wonder drugs that have a lot of other off-label use applications. Uh, but we have to be careful and we have to do our research um and um we can't, you know, can't say that they're the magic bullet for everything. But i've used it uh, with good with good success and interestingly enough, a lot of my patients who got transitioned from nitrozoxinide to ivermectin because of COVID would come back and say, you know, that ivermectin kicked, it kicked COVID's butt in two or three days, but it also uh, ameliorated or mitigated some of my Lyme symptoms. So sometimes, well, you know, it's very dependent on the patient. Sometimes alenia will work better or ivermectin would. So um, sometimes it's like trial and error. Um, But we're using it as an anti-virus, anti-parasitic, anti-Lyme drug. And um, in some cases, I'm I'm looking at it as an adjunct uh, for cancer treatment.
0: Wow. Yeah. Um, And of course, uh, you talk about these medicines that are off-label that are showing so much promise. The question is to get the study done, isn't it? get the study published. We've we've had a lot of fun with that. I think there's
1: pretty good studies done on it, on Alina and that's been done as an antiviral. That's, what's interesting is they're broad-based antivirals. They're not targeting one specific virus. And that's very unique in, in our drug repertoire. Because typically we've always been taught, you know, very, like when you think of antibiotics, antibiotics kind of are used more specifically. Whereas opposed to some of these broad-based repurposed drugs have much more Effect, you know, on the body, more for more basic.
0: Mm-hmm. The problem is this,
1: you know. But the funny part is they they're now expensive. But you made such a great point, JP. They're cheap. <laughs> they're they're inexpensive to make. Very inexpensive.
2: Right.
0: Well, thank heavens that doctors like you are using them and see the value. And anyway we got a lot of good questions for you. A lot of really good questions from people. Um, are you ready to take on some vaccinated questions? We have um, Robert Ole wants to know if you're vaccinated and get COVID, but treated successfully with the FLCCC protocol, can you still get long COVID associated with the original COVID illness? That's so interesting. Uh,
1: yeah. Um, I, I,
2: At that point, I mean, if it's not contiguous, uh, you would say maybe it's a post-COVID syndrome of some sort. I mean, sometimes it raises its ugly head eight to 12 months later. I've been noticing in my practice, I don't know, Keith, if you have, but a lot of rashes, um, facial rashes. And this is not with the vaccine. This is with COVID infections. Now, I do with some of the vax injured, people who've had the full series and are pretty boost it up, and then they get two or three bouts of COVID on top of that. I'm not seeing that so much with the unvaccinated. It's the folks that have been vaccinated that report one or two COVID infections, albeit, albeit mild, milder infections. They do get them. And uh, I've had a couple of patients in the last week or so that have presented with rash, uh, kind of like this sandpaper-like um, rash that's red and itchy, very paritic. Um, sometimes on the trunk, sometimes on the forearm, uh, but a lot of a lot of times on the face. Uh, Keith, I don't know if you're seeing that, but you know, I have yeah. a, a kind of an unusual population.
1: Yeah, I think there's a. What's interesting, one thing that's turning out, and I wonder, if this is I'm seeing this more around since Omicron's been around, where people developing extreme histamine intolerance, where I'm, mm-hmm. where I actually and histamine levels we measure they're not the most accurate, but I'm seeing very high histamine levels, and I wonder if some of those rashes are really the expression of histamines. I mean people we know histamines as being a mark of allergies, but they're also a mark of chronic inflammation. So if someone's already inflamed that and that inflammation doesn't go away, that's when histamines are all going to always be high. And and what's interesting, I've I've put a lot of my patients on a low histamine diet and I'm actually seeing a lot of improvement in a lot of some a lot of the symptoms from doing that alone.
2: Right? Yeah, low histamine diet, low low histamine-releasing foods or low, uh, hi- are, are getting rid of the histamine-containing foods uh, like your aged cheese or your canned fish and things like that. But also measuring um, histamine and the byproducts and also uh, uh, DAO um, diamine oxidase, which is an enzyme that breaks down histamines. And uh, Pepsid and uh, Claritin and Zyrtec are helpful. Um, You don't have to get as fancy as using ketotefin if you don't want to, but uh, for those resistant, you know, a singular might be helpful. Uh, Corsetin, resveratrol, those are uh, over-the-counter things. Uh, Vitamin C, don't forget vitamin C and corsetin or isocorsetin are very helpful antihistamines. So uh, that kind of leads or segues into the MCAS thing, the mast cell activation syndrome, which we see with a lot of... Chronic disease like Lyme and and mycotoxin illness and now COVID. So I, I you know, I Keith, are you using um kind of are you stepping it up for to cover MCAS? Yeah, I, what's
1: I just, interesting is when we look you talk about vaccine and vaccine injury, people with a history of MCAS or histamine intolerance seem to be much more affected. They definitely seem to be sicker post than a lot of my more severe vaccine injured or long COVID seem to be in that category. And what's, going back to that question about long COVID, I wonder if that's why I'm not seeing as much in my practice because what I've really done in the last six months to a year is aggressive blockade of histamines early when it's part of my early intervention. And I wonder if that's really where we're seeing this morph, more metamorphosis of long COVID related to that as well. Do you see that too, that the people with MCAS, if they have a vaccine or COVID, they tend to be much more likely to have to be sick afterwards?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And any of my uh, chronically ill folks that suffer from MCAS, I mean, they're super sensitive to a COVID infection or definitely you see the worst, I think the worst uh, examples of vaccine injury in those folks. So, you know, um, it's, it's devastating when you hear a young person stating they have to get vaccinated because they'll lose their job Or if they want to travel now, God only knows with these vaccine passports what that's going to entail. But um, we had a case recently uh, where we had this patient wanted to uh, get a booster because they felt that they couldn't go on with their normal life, what they wanted to do without it. So we sort of ramped up a protocol of giving uh, pre dose uh, ivermectin and post you know, a week out after and crossed our fingers. And of course we put them on a lot of the nutraceuticals. Um, so, um, you know, we just, in those cases, we we don't know. There's no trials that have been done to show that that's effective or not, but we, you know, we throw some stuff at them uh, in the hopes that it'll minimize any untoward effect.
1: And I think one uh, one question on this. So when people talk about side effects, everyone was talking about immediate, you could still have histamine issues weeks out. You don't have to necessarily have to have immediate issue to, to mean that it's a histamine problem, right? I think that's what people are often confused. They only look at histamines as the allergic component, but not as a chronic inflammatory marker. I'm I sorry. Just, but,
0: yeah. I just, no, I have to say this to JP because you said something earlier on that somebody could have misconstrued that you were advocating using uh, medicines that were formulated for animals. That's not true, is it?
2: So Fembendazole is actually only available um, at, at for, with veterinary medicine. So uh, there have been studies in humans that show it's extremely safe, but this is not a discussion for this forum with, with regards to uh, COVID and RSV and all that. This, this, hap- this femben is actually used as a cancer therapy, and again, in some extreme cases where other things don't work. So, um, yeah, I'm not saying, you know, go out and do it. And we can't even prescribe it because it's not available in pharmacies or even compounding pharmacies.
0: Okay. Just wanted to make make that clear. Um, Lynn Dean has a question. She says, I was diagnosed with COVID today and the doctor prescribed Paxlovid. What are the downsides of this drug, in your opinion?
1: So what's so interesting, if let's go back to the research, right? So when it was tested, it was actually only tested in unvaccinated people. So the research was really only in that group. And if you look at the follow-up, it really only showed meaningful benefit in their study in people that were over 65, right? That's what showed reduction in hospitalization, where in, in the UK studies under 50, there was no benefit or no change. The problem is, is that there's a rebound effect and the rebound effect is not rare, I have two patients who ended up taking it and both ended up rebounding. And what's interesting about it is they got a worse infection the second time. So their COVID was mild and their rebound was much more severe. And I wonder if, if it actually works and, and JPU, you, you may know more of this side, maybe it's only a viral suppressor that it only while it's on board suppresses the virus but really doesn't take it out completely.
2: Yeah, I have I have yet to write my first prescription for it. It's off the table for me. Yeah, me too. I,
1: I have not used it yeah. once.
0: We have a question from Lam, who says, "Are you seeing any difference in flu, RSV, or COVID symptoms severity between COVID vaccinated and COVID unvaccinated people?"
1: You want me to take that? So yeah, you take that one. Yeah. Where I'm seeing, and this is what's interesting, it's recently vaccinated people. So what people don't realize when they get a vaccine, right after you have a vaccine, you have a dip in immunity for one to two weeks. So what I'm seeing a lot of cases of people who have gotten a recent COVID vaccine or flu vaccine, and then weren't careful the next two or three weeks, then those are the ones that are. I'm seeing much more severe cases. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing
2: most of my patients aren't vaccinated in my patient population. So um, I'm seeing folks coming in as first timers for acute illness. And um, I can't say we've correlated. I mean, we've, we've data mined that to show one way or the other, but, um, you know, I'm probably less than 20% of my patient base have had a a single COVID vaccine, let alone a whole whole course.
0: It's very hard in New York City not to be vaccinated. Yes. uh, All right. Linda Watts would like to know, she says, I had the flu last week. I had been taking all the FLCCC recommended supplements, nose sprays, mouthwash, gargle, et cetera. And I still had a whole week of symptoms, including fever for four days and a serious cough. What could I have done better?
2: Well, you know, not everything works for everybody. And um, sometimes it's trial and error. Um, I don't know how much of the Nigelia sativa that we did uh, use. Um, Were you dosing it appropriately? Um, There are, again, also the supplements. It's not just a matter of getting the recommended supplements. You, You have to source them wisely. So there are good supplement companies and there are bad supplement companies. A few years ago in Canada... They went in and randomly uh, acquired uh, things like vitamin C and melatonin and and uh, other nutraceuticals off the shelf and tested them. Some of them had talcum powder in it. Some of them had zero of the active ingredients. Some of them had more and some of them had less milligrams. That, was, that actually was repeated by the attorney general's office in New York state. I don't know, Keith, you remember that, but yeah. They wound up suing a couple of retail uh, outlets and had them pull stuff off their shelf. So sometimes it's beneficial to get high-end pharmaceutical grade nutraceuticals by certain brands, I think, because, you know, it's very competitive out there. And while it's an unregulated industry, what these brands do to, to get on the top shelf, they want to uh, prove to their customers, their high end. So they self-test, they use third-party labs and um, there are companies that are um, usually aligned with healthcare providers that do fulfillment for those uh, nutraceuticals of, of high you know high end nutraceuticals, and um, it's it's kind of worth them. They're a little bit more expensive, but it's worth the money because you you know what you're getting. Uh, so it depends on you know if you're taking NAC, where are you getting that from? And is it old? Is it a bottle that's been opened and left on your shelf for three months? Because it, it NAC, N-acetylcysteine, degrades. It's, it's It oxidizes. So some people will notice when they first open the bottle the first few days, it feels great. It works wonderful. And as the weeks go by, the effect is less. So um, don't buy huge bottles of stuff because they can oxidize or go bad. Buy smaller quantities and go through them quicker. Um, yeah. So... So with the the black cumin seed oil, let's use that as an example. Uh, there's um, an active ingredient called thimoquin or TQ. Uh, so the content of that should be standardized to that TQ, and it depends on how much you're taking. Are you taking you know ten or forty or eighty milligrams per kilogram body weight per day? You know, so that that might be uh, the thing. Number one, the quality of your supplement, and number two, appropriate dosing. And number three, the length of dosing. You know, don't quit too early. We learned that lesson in the Lyme population. Somebody feels pretty good and you yank them off their, their cocktail of, um, of tinctures or whatever for treating Lyme too soon, and, and they kind of rebound a little bit. So, you know what's um,
1: interesting about that, JP, is that my patients with COVID now, they're testing positive for a longer period of time, which it may, it's not as severe. But I wonder if also in influenza, the same thing where treatments have to be extended out for a longer period of time
0: than we previously said before. Yeah, yep, you absolutely. On this line, we have another question. Um, someone says, Nicoletta wants to know, from your experience, what would be the best treatment for foggy brain and tinnitus if the FLCCC protocol didn't help?
2: Wow, uh, so brain fog is a really one that lingers um, and there's all kinds of varieties of brain fog. Um, and, um, and tinnitus is, is extremely difficult to treat. We we have that as a pr- a, a prominent symptom of uh, chronic Lyme disease, you know, vertigo and tinnitus, and uh, extremely resistant. So sometimes it's the last complaint to get resolved, if it ever does get resolved. Um, Beta histine was a, a, a something that could be compounded uh, by a compounding pharmacy, uh, usually 15 milligrams, and you have to take it three times a day TID, that showed a lot of promise. But with me, actually, it's about 50-50. Same thing with oxytocin nasal spray and uh, um, synapsin nasal spray. I'd say oxytocin is a 50-50 on tinnitus and synapsin is maybe even less, maybe 30% effective. And and again, we're not talking about complete resolution. We're talking about diminished uh, symptoms, but not complete resolution. What do you think? Keith on that.
1: Yeah. And also, the longer the tinnitus has been around, the harder it is. The problem with the brain fog, I think it's multifactorial. I think you have to first determine what the cause is because it could be post viral, it could be post inflammatory, it could be histamine mediated, it could be vascular. So, there's so many different methods. And what we've often tried, and I do, is you try one approach. If it doesn't work, try another. And people respond to different approaches. I mean, tinnitus, I think, is the hardest of all the symptoms we deal with, unfortunately.
0: Mm-hmm. here's an interesting question from patty lapire who says in 2021 there were the monoclonal antibodies the people the people were given that seemed to be effective for stopping the replication of spike protein what is your opinion of them and why doesn't anyone offer them anymore
2: well i'll go with this because it's going to be a short answer <laughs> i I was, I I don't like MABs. I don't like monoclonal antibodies of any flavor. So I don't use them in my practice. And when those came online, again, I I viewed that with the same skepticism I did with the, quote, safe and effective vaccine. So I have not administered monoclonal antibodies. Um, You know, possibly that was maybe a wrong decision for some patients because I understand it was helpful with some uh, I think Pierre may have mentioned uh, that it was like a 50-50 um, proposition for his patients. Some did well on them, some didn't. I just didn't use them. They were expensive, hard to get. And um, again, I'm a, I'm not a big MAB kind of guy, so.
1: Yeah, and also they were very specific, strain specific, a lot of them, right? So if there's a mutation you could see very clearly they lost their efficacy right, they kept on rotating. The other thing is I did have some cases and it happened to be young women to develop long COVID post, long-haul COVID post MAV use.
0: Okay. Um, Ellen Azuma asks, are the new variants more severe in terms of causing long COVID? Does prior infection with BA4 or BA5 provide any protection from long COVID?
2: Gosh, I don't know. Um, I, I think it may be too early to tell. Um, I, I'm not really seeing that so much. Um, I, I seem to have a lot of uh, folks with the long, long COVID from um, you know previous, earlier variants. I'm not seeing it so much in the newer.
1: I mean, we talked about this before. I think that it's a lot of histamine-mediated now, more so, so. And I think our protocols have really adapted to that. And I'm not really seeing much long COVID with you know, first-time infection, it, it's hard. Things are so confounding now. People have had vaccines, infections, so it's hard to say what the driver is. I'm not seeing really that Omicron by itself is really triggering long COVID. I think, I think it's turning out to be much more mild in general compared to what we saw before. And if my theory is correct and we're attacking the histamine and the chronic inflammatory stuff earlier, we we not going to see long COVID anyway, right? We learned that with the earlier strains when we started early treatment, we didn't see much long COVID, right? We were able to stop. Really, I think the inflammatory response—if you can really stop that inflammatory response early, get the viral load down quickly—I think that's what's really preventing this long term. Again, it goes back to early treatment is always the key.
2: Yeah, and I think if you have, I think if you have a big response, a big. Um, Um, history of uh, long COVID, uh, kind of a bad bad case of it, you got to like look deep. You got to dig deep for another uh, part of that onion skin. You know, I talk about onion skin, different layers of stuff. Is it it Epstein-Barr? Is it, um, you know, a history of uh, chronic fatigue? Is it Lyme? Is it mycotoxin illness? Is it heavy metals? It's usually something else. Uh, Multifactorial is a good term to use. Keith, Use that Uh, Before. Um, And I think, you know, we can't just pin this on the vaccine or the COVID infection. We got to dig deep, especially if people start falling apart um, and they have, um, you know, really severe cases. You got to start digging deep and look for some occult thing going on with them that um, has uh, been potentiated Mm -hmm. by the vaccine or by a COVID or coronavirus infection or influenza infection, whatever.
1: And I've had cases, I don't know if you've seen this, JP, I have several cases who had no COVID exposure, no vaccination, and ended up acute Epstein-Barr virus. So you can still, from exposure in the environment, it can still be other things. And just because it, it may not be COVID, it doesn't mean that it's not one of these other factors. I think that's so important to look at. And the other thing, and JP and I always, I know he does this too, you have to support the gut microbiome. So important because medicine's all about foundation. It's building a strong foundation. And the beginnings of that foundation is the gut microbiome. That's
2: right. The gut microbiome and, and supporting uh, mitochondrial function, you know, uh, and getting getting folks off of like statins that are CoQ10 depleters and, and ha- hamper the mitochondria. Um, you know, so as of late, we're getting folks coming in with major polypharmacy. 13 meds, one, one fella uh, recently 30, that was three zero. I thought it was a typo on the intake forms, 30 medications. Uh, uh it's just blew me away within the first session. I took half of them away and the guy did great. Um, actually lost some weight and, uh, felt alive again, but, um, so yeah, but you gotta be careful with some, um, you know, some of them are tricky, the benzodiazepines and things like Cymbalta, Duloxetine, you got to be super careful on titrating. It might take a year to titrate people off of those um, slowly.
0: We uh, on a happy oh, wait. We got a couple of things here, and we have to close up at eight o'clock. So we're running out of time. We have lots of good questions, but some folks are asking how long the mRNA spike proteins stay in the body following the Pfizer injections for COVID. Do you know?
1: I don't know if anyone knows. I don't I mean, know if anyone
2: knows that question, answer that okay. question.
1: I mean, right. let me tell, there was a, there was, uh, did you read this? There was a person who had their appendix out. I think it was 14 months after coronavirus infection, COVID-19, and there was still presence of the virus in, in in that part. Oh, it was the appendix, excuse me, not the gallbladder, but it was still there. And Sabina Zahn has seen it in the stool up to a year later. So we, we don't know. I mean, I, I, I think we're not gonna know that for a long, long time.
0: Okay. Now, on a happier note, uh, D. Smith says, have you heard anything about ivermectin helping with arthritis, possibly due to Lyme disease that occurred many years ago? Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Ding, 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 ding.
2: (laughs) Yep. Um, Again, um, a a number of my patients with known Lyme and those without uh, knowing they had Lyme were diagnosed in my clinic uh, with, with a trial of ivermectin for their COVID. So um, some of them herxed and they thought, well, I'm allergic to this drug or it's making me worse. And when we further evaluated them, they turned out testing serology positive and by clinical diagnosis for Borrelia bongdorfia and maybe some of the co-infections. So, yeah, um, Lyme arthritis is a big one, um, but Lyme affects a lot of other organs. It's one of the great masqueraders um, so no telling every, every Lyme patient kind of presents differently. Uh, but yeah, you can, you can see a resolution of, uh, Lyme arthritis with ivermectin for sure.
1: And, and JP, you always know this people with Lyme have to go much, much slower with dosing. It's very, very important. And I, I yeah. want you want to describe what hurts my reaction is. I think people want to know that. You might, yeah.
2: You know, so yeah, so if you go to any Lyme forum online, you'll see them refer to it as HERX, H-E-R-X, HERX. It's short for Jaresh-Herxheimer Reaction, named after two dermatologists at the turn of the century. They were treating their patients with mercury for syphilis, another spirochete, And it was um, a reactions people were having. So they tested it to find out, well, they reacting to the mercury and it turned out it wasn't the mercury toxicity. Of course, we don't use mercury anymore for for, other, for obvious reasons, but uh, it was the die-off. So it was a kind of a storm of cytokines that caused a lot of inflammation, yielding low-grade fever, headaches, malaise, nausea, vomiting, uh, body aches, chills. That kind of thing is, is a die-off from those microorganisms. So you saw it with syphilis. You see it with the spirochetes that cause Lyme disease, And you can see it in somebody with pneumococcal pneumonia. They get a big dose of Rocephin IV in the hospital, and they can herx. Um, In in severe cases, it could be quite um, uncomfortable and even fatal in the most severe cases. But usually, it's just really uncomfortable. And like Keith said, you treat your Lyme patients nice and slow with low doses because a herxheimer is very uncomfortable and may discourage them from continuing treatment. Um, So I usually back down on my therapy. I I try to start low, but even super low doses, they can still have that Herx reaction. And and there are things to do to abate it or mitigate it. Epsom salts baths, uh, uh, resveratrol, transveratrol, quercetin, uh, lemon water, uh, good hydration, IV Myers cocktails, glutathione, and um, all um, help mitigate those Herx reactions. Skullcap is good for Chinese skullcap if it's a neurological Herx, which usually uh, causes an increase in quinolinic acid, which is a neuroirritant in the brain. Uh, Melatonin can actually help. If you can't uh, tolerate melatonin, I tell people Japanese or Chinese skullcap is really good for that.
0: You guys are good. We have run out of time. I am so sorry. We had so many good questions coming in. <laughs> you have to come back. We just have to do this again. You're you you two are terrific on together. Thank you so much. Um, just super, absolutely super. Um, but we we have to we have to go. <laughs> it's been an hour. And uh, you know, we have to tell you folks out there. You probably didn't know that we have um, a video library now of past Q&As. So it's on our Odyssey channel. And if you have a burning question, you may just want to check there first. There's the slide. There you go. Genie.us webinar. Anyway, that's the thing you need to copy and and you will be able to see this library of Q&As and they might have answered your question it could have been Paul or Pierre or you know Keith we have a number of doctors that we bring on all kinds of specialties and you might have your answer there um, Now then, some of you uh, are suffering with flu-like symptoms at the moment. Uh, just a reminder, we do have a flu and RSV protocol to help with that. Just go to the link on this slide. There's another link for you for the eye care RSV and flu treatment. Now then, for those of you who speak Spanish, Good news. Good news. We want to say thank you to the amazing Adriana Bermudez, who has worked tirelessly to translate all of our protocols into Spanish. Those are now posted on our website. So enjoy. You can get all of the information in Spanish. Now, speaking of thank yous, it's time to bring on our nurses. We owe thanks to the great team of nurses who are here. Now, bring on the live nurses right now. We're going to come to, to yeah, let's see the nurses who have been working. The, Christina, yes, all right. You know, Christina Maros, who's our CRNA, she organized the nurses group tonight. She was joined by our regulars, oh. Pamela and Samantha and Stephanie. How many questions did you handle behind the scenes while we were talking? Mm, we had... We had over two, two, f- 225, we've answered 125, about, we had a lot of, we have a lot of new melatonin questions. <laughs> okay. For Keith, Get ready.
1: Christina, you're, we can't keep up with you. Seriously. I mean, I-
0: I can't keep up with them either, Keith. I'm going to start putting you on the clinical line. You and JP can answer all the questions. But you're better. All great. We are so thankful that you give your time and donated here to help all of these people. And because there's no way we can get all of them on in just an hour with these doctors who, you know, they, they talk and they get in deep and all of that. But you can get a few more on there and them into the text and we thank you so much so very much now we want to go to that slide and there we are nina hart we want a round of applause for nina she's our nurse of the month she transitioned from a corporate job to set up her own consulting business aimed at helping exhausted nurses survive in the broken medical system or escape it and better use their experience and skills to improve patients and their own lives. Well done, Nina. Congratulations. Now then, Dr. Bean has taught us about the benefits of treatment with methylene blue. But if you want to know more about how to mix and administer methylene blue, because it can be complicated, be sure to check out Dr. Bean's newest long story short video at flccc.net forward slash Dr. Bean on Odyssey or YouTube. You'll get all that you need to know about methylene blue. And Be sure to join us, get your calendars out now. Next week, be sure to join us. We will be here and welcome our special guest, Dr. Elizabeth Mumper, to talk about how to keep kids healthy this winter. The week after that, we are welcoming attorney Ralph Larigo and filmmaker Connor Callanan to talk about hospital stories with happy endings. And on December 28th, we're gonna take a break for the holidays. We need it, you need it. We're all going to you know, celebrate, try not to pass around any germs, but nevertheless, we will be with our protocols, we'll be healthy and we will be taking a break. But that's what's coming up. Now then, finally tonight, I want to remind you of our Share the Light campaign that's on until the end of the year. For over two years, we have been hearing from so many of you with stories about how our protocols have provided a light in the darkness and brought hope and healing to you and your families. We are so proud to have been able to touch your lives in a positive way. We just ask that you help us share the light by making a gift that could save someone else's life. From now until the end of December, you can double your impact thanks to a generous donor who has agreed to match each gift dollar for dollar up to $250,000. So please go to flccc.net forward slash donate and make a donation today. And we thank you so much. We thank you. And so do our folks who have been giving us these My Story videos. Let's sign out with this this wonderful one that we got from South Africa.